0: Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We are The Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With
1: me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennin. Well, great to be here, Dan. Uh, you know, we're on a series of my favorites. We had my childhood favorite. Now, you know, it's torn. We have a great debate in the family. Phineas and Ferb versus Kim Possible. Best Disney animated show ever. We'll let to see what the audience says.
0: I think that's a really great matchup. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones that I really like, because I think that they've got quite a few good ones, but those two are definitely the top of the list for sure, and I know someone who has an opinion on that, and that is Ben Seepser, our enigmatic engineer. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week?
2: You know. Today, I am here on this beautiful alien planet, but there appears to be some very dangerous spores floating around that are manipulating the behavior of the local inhabitants.
0: Well, if you don't mind just breathing those in, I've put those there for your comfort, Ben. Uh, And while you do that, I'm going to mention that we are obviously talking about Phineas and Ferb and the great movie Candace Against the Universe. and We'll talk about all of them, but that movie, you know, Denon, this is really, this is is a Denon joint. You really wanted to do this one. That's because you are a big fan. That movie seems
1: like their swan song. Is that true? Well, you know, it could be, but you never know. I mean, Phineas and Ferb make comebacks from lots of things. I'm, I'm looking forward to like Phineas, Ferb, next gen, um, Phineas and Ferb lost in space. You know, there's a lot of ways we could go with this.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very true. And and the other thing that I want to mention here, for the people who are unfamiliar, just so I want to get this correct. Phineas has the triangle, the equilateral triangle head, like he ate a wedge of cheese and the floating eyebrows. And Ferb has the baseball bat head, high pants and the English accent. Is that pretty accurate?
1: I think that's a very accurate description, Dan. Um, everyone can now picture them perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So he, it's not just those two. They've got a whole
0: group of friends. And before we start out, I've got to ask we get right into this, these kids seem off the chart smart, including Baljeet. I, I did some quick math here, and he is, ru- I think he's roughly like eight years old with the mental abilities of a 60 year old scientist. And that puts his IQ at around 750, which would make him the, one of of the smartest animated characters of all time. Uh,
1: is that accurate? And what's going on here, Denon? Well, I think it is accurate. And what's interesting, you know, I, we seem to have a running theme here. We've got Pinky in the Brain figuring out who the genius is there. Scooby-Doo, who the genius is here. I will put uh, the Phineas and Ferb gang, I think, over the top because even the bully in the gang, Buford, is incredibly smart in his own way. A man of very few words, but his genius comes through at various times. And we'll see. The choice of a canoe, absolutely genius yeah I think you know the, the canoe is great and I th-
0: we're going to get to that because I've got a couple things to say about that as well um, but you know not only are there interesting dynamics in the individual group in the group of the kids this is I got to tell you as I was breaking this down and looking at some of the, di- the family dynamics in this show they're kind of off the charts here guys I'm trying to f- I'm going to come up with a connection between Dr. Doofenshmirtz and Phineas and Ferb because I think that there's one there and the internet has been trying to find the answer, and I'm going to give it to you guys. That is our gift to you. We are the brain trust. Uh, so that's going to come along a little bit later. But while I was researching this, there's a lot of very interesting issues here. So I'm going to run this down, Denon, and let me know if I'm getting this right. Ferb is Phineas's stepbrother. There's no mention of Phineas or Candace, his, her, his older sister, of their dad. Un, it's kind of a mystery in this show, right? We never see Ferb's mom at all. That's also a mystery here, because who are these people? Are they super intelligent? Are they the key to this whole show? I don't know, and I think that there are some of the few X factors here. Uh, Doofenshmirtz has a daughter named Vanessa. He has an ex-wife, Charlene. Vanessa's trying to tell Charlene how much of an evil scientist that Dr. Doofenshmirtz is. She's not listening. She's given up on that, and I think that... That is kind of all the these complicated, you know, it's a, it's a tangled web. Denon, is what I'm trying to say here.
1: It's definitely a very tangled web among the family and c- making all the connections. I think you got that right, Dan. It's it's an interesting backstory for all of them and sets that groundwork for the show. Yeah, I think so, Ben. I'm curious what you think. I think you're kind of
0: new to the show. If I'm if I'm understanding your experience correctly, what did you think about this when you were watching it?
2: Well, I mean, I just. I thought the dynamic between all the kids was just very cute. I liked the super brainy, super overachieving, uh, girl scout with, you know, the, the merit badges that are like uh, on a 20 foot long roll. Like it's just, it's just great to see that, um, genius and engineering talent are being celebrated amongst such a large group of youngsters who are, while they're not changing the world, they're certainly changing their world um, and having fun with uh, science and technology.
0: That does not surprise me that you would have that opinion, Ben. As the engineer of the group, <laughs> I think you would. It makes sense that you would want to see engineering celebrated. I guess that is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. now, I, I So I love that stuff. I think you're exactly right, and that's what drew me to the show. But I gotta, I'm going to crack the code here for you guys. We got to get. I'm going to get right into this. I'm like no spoiling. Waiting till the end here. I'm going to tell you there's a connection between Do- Doofenshmirtz and Phineas here, and I think it's important to the show. There's the seemingly yin and yang aspect to them, then. And I'm just going to you you're our expert here. Um, when, when I see them, Doofenshmirtz seems to almost have it an independent life from Phineas, yet all of his inventions, all of his innators seem to counteract the technology of Phineas and Ferb. I found this to be such a, a fascinating aspect of this show, and it made me think. I think I've got the answer here, guys, and they are in some ways quantum entangled. They never directly interact with each other, although they do actually, in this movie, I believe is the first time they directly interact, but for the most of the time, they're not interacting, yet they affect each other at great Distances. I think there's something here, Dennett, and I want you to help me break
1: it down. Well, you know, I think, Dan, as we've discussed on many of our episodes, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about what would a world be like where quantum entanglement can occur at a larger scale. And I agree with you. I think this is an example of what that might look like. We know quantum entanglement has to do when you make a measurement in a certain state— And an observation there, it automatically changes the state of the other thing. So you have two spins. They're quantum entangled. They go far apart. You measure one spin. You know what the spin of the other is. This is the classic thing that's happening in every finishing verb episode. You have two devices that have been built. They're deeply connected. Candice makes an observation Attempts to get the mom to make an observation, this act of attempted observation causes the innator that Doofenshmirtz has built to interact with the object that Phineas and Ferb have built, making it go away. And then when the final act of observation, the mom looks, it's gone every single time. If that isn't quantum entanglement and the best explanation of it, I don't know what is. <laughs> that is a
0: Nobel Prize.
1: I'm, I'm going to submit that to the
0: Nobel people because I think we have really cracked the case here and brought it in. I love that, Denon. Uh, ben, what did you t- think about this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's near miraculous how uh, Doofenshmirtz's uh, equipment always manages to— Uh, disappear Phineas and Ferb's uh, shenanigans just in time. Uh, There's clearly something more going on than just random chance with this uh, situation.
1: And I'll add another element to it, Dan. It's always done safely. And I think that safety factor is part of what brings it together in a quantum entangled way, because they're linked in a way that it occurs gently. As we talk about later in the episode, we'll be talking about lint, what more gentle destruction could you have? I think
0: that's a great point. And I think maybe the key here—I don't want to throw this theory off because God knows I think we've nailed it here—but uh, there's Agent P, the platypus, right? He seems to, in some ways, be the X factor because he is the connection between these two worlds. And, you know, in some ways—you know, I, I laid out the the ultimate theory of Scooby-Doo last week. He's on both sides of the fence, For as a spoiler alert—I somehow think— Perry the platypus is vying that same line. Everyone's wondering where he is, what he's doing. And it's, you know, he's, he, no one ever knows, no one can ever nail this guy down. And I think he's involved in this. I don't know, entangled is the wrong word, but he's involved. How does that affect it, Denon?
1: Well, it, what it actually could be is Perry plays the role of creating the quantum entangled state between the two objects at the beginning by, um, the nature of being present at the creation of the one when Phineas and Ferber just starting it when they're having their idea before it's done, he disappears and shows up always in a creative way with Schmertz. So you're right. I think Perry could be that initiator of the state, just the way Candace and her mom plays the role of what we call collapsing the wave functions and bringing everything together.
2: That's exactly right, Dan. It's kind of clear here that Perry the platypus is acting as the entangling Glue between these two worlds, where he's he is the creator of this this quantum link uh, that keeps this uh, thread going throughout the series.
0: Well, and I think that that's very important to think about because there are a lot of very interesting threads throughout this series, um, and and it's you know obviously the the two guys every show they have some kind of crazy you know technology, some crazy invention that they create. So Ben, in this in this episode in this movie that I really like, the AI powered juggling robot. Now this seems extraordinarily dangerous, and would require extreme levels of computation and planning and engineering. Uh, can you break down this giant juggling clown so I can have one at my next birthday party?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. This robot, I love this robot because here's like a 60-foot t- tall robot. It's tossing these kids 30, 40, 50 feet in the air. Um, and it just looks super fun. Uh, but you, of course, need very uh, complicated image uh, recognition algorithms to keep track of the kids as you're juggling them. Uh, I'm a juggler myself. And what's really important when you're juggling is to kind of keep your eyes focused on the arc of the balls as they come in front of your, um, line, um, so that you, and you kind of just predict where your hands go based on, uh, On the shape of that cresting. So clearly this this robot is throwing the kids at eye level and through that it is able to predict where to put its hands to catch the kids as they come back down.
1: Yeah, I feel like in this case, as Ben said, um, as amazing as it looks down on the surface, and I know you mentioned complicated AI to figure it out. For me, this is kind of one of those interesting moments of perhaps very simple, straightforward physics. Trajectories are the easiest thing to calculate. There is some air resistance here, makes it a little harder, but air resistance has a minimal effect on the kids. And if you think about it, juggling is one of those things that is incredibly impressive it is hard to do from one perspective but it's very mathematical and formulaic from another so it might be the ideal task for a robot Well I think we're all bearing the lead here guys and that is that Ben just said he's a juggler
0: himself. I had no idea that you juggled <laughs> Ben uh, well, how many things have you juggled yeah. at one point and is, were any of them on fire
2: uh, I've never juggled anything on fire I've done I've done f- well, I've done five but not for very long. Uh, and i I can kind of do four where you're doing two, two, uh, two item juggle cycles in each hand individually. When did you when did um, you take this up? This is this is fascinating. Oh, I've been juggling since like elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I got I got uh, as a holiday gift. I got the juggling for the complete klutz. Uh, Activity book, and really got into it.
0: Well, I, I remember learning how to juggle with scarves, and I could barely keep them afloat. So I am incredibly impressed. So not only do you juggle all kinds of things in your hands, but also different technologies on the show, uh, which includes the thing that takes out, you know, that quantum entanglement takes, that takes out the giant juggling robot, and that is the Power vacuuminator. This is, uh, it essentially, if I'm, I'm correct here, it turns the giant robot into into a big ball of lint. Denon, you mentioned that this is the safest way to have have destroyed that giant robot, and I think you're right, and then creates a giant suction to
1: suck it all up. Uh, What is going on here, Denon? Well, first, I want to say something that the longtime viewers of Phineas and Ferb will understand, And What's mainly going on here is revealing that Doofenshmirtz's power is his wordplay. He's actually a humanist at heart. His ability to build good innators are always in question. I mean, why you would design something that turns stuff into lint and then vacuums it up is always questionable. However, his wordplay around it Very, very good, very solid, the multiple uses of vacuum, recognizing the different parts of speech and his banter with Perry, being impressed when Perry uses it in a third um, manner where he uses vacuum as a noun. Very clever and a consistent theme in the show. I know that was not your question, Dan, but I thought I'd emphasize (laughs) his power of wordplay. You know, that being said, I think the biggest physics problem with this is the, you know— Vacuum operating at such a distance. I know our viewers will argue and say it's turning stuff to lint. Um, I get the possible concern over that as a challenge from a physics point of view. But I'm, I'm, I'm a little struggling with the vacuum at a distance. I think the power required for that is is beyond what we normally have. But I'll let Ben answer that because he really gets that engineering power stuff more accurate than I do.
2: Yeah, so, th- so there's two things that uh, troubled me about this. One is if this entire robot is instantly turned to lint... How does it still have enough structure to hold the kids so that they don't just immediately crash through the pile to the ground? Like, it holds its shape for a long time. So I, th- I feel like there's some very interesting static electricity forces going on there to uh, hold, hold the now-Lint robot together. And I'm guessing that uh, the Lint must be very tightly packed and still has a similar density, maybe, to the original metal robot so that it doesn't just immediately squish and the kids tumble down. Um, in terms of the the flow, that's a little more difficult. Um, I think it it implies that this vacuuminator is more of a weather controlinator uh, because it's able to control to create a very focused uh, airstream from the backyard of the kids' backyard to, the uh, vacuuminator's uh, intake place. <laughs> I do
1: want to comment on the lint. I think Ben, you know, when you started mentioning it being compact, that's the right thing. This is a very high density lint that has basically transferred into kind of what we would call our complex fluid properties. I, you know, it's not quite foam; it's more like a pile of very, very dense sand. Um, that it is, you know, got kind of some mechanical structure that it is able to hold that shape for a little bit. There's clearly an energy barrier before the lint starts flowing. Um, and so you, I think Ben got it right. The density of the lint is a key factor in its holding its shape. I think that's important. It's also important for safety because as
0: it is sucked up, it's still holding its shape. It doesn't. It's not going to lose its support, and everyone's going to come tumbling down. They all come down at a gentle volume. All the kids end up landing safely, and I believe that that is part of the properties of the uh, material that you're talking about here, Denon. Uh, now, the one other thing we got to talk about here, guys, before we get run out of time, and that is the chicken replacinator. I love this idea. It gets them in and out of trouble, and I also loved the settings. I love this joke because on the actual chicken replacinator, you can replace any object with a chicken that is either the nearest chicken, the furthest chicken, one in Beverly Hills or one in Beverly Hills adjacent. And I love that joke because technically I live in Beverly Hills adjacent. Uh, It is such, it is constantly made fun of here in LA. That's very inside. Not everyone's going to get that, but I personally appreciated that joke. Um, But I think, you know, we're talking about ways to detect the DNA signature of a different species and not a specific species like we talked about in our, uh, the Mandalorian panel we did uh, just recently at Comic-Con. There's a whole different thing here, but it's some similar technology. Uh, ben, I'm going to talk to you first. What what'd you think about this?
2: Yeah, so it's really interesting that this device is able to, uh, la- first off, latch onto chickens anywhere in the universe. You know, the, f- the first use we see of it is, you know, they're on this alien planet and they use it to get rid of this uh, dragon creature. Uh, and so to me, it's really interesting that uh, through that Mandalorian connection, that's able to track the dna of these chickens all the way across the universe uh you know they they talk about earlier how it's like eight this uh planet is eight sectors away which is really far and too far for like a normal uh teleportation device uh so and they needed to build this like extra quantum energy uh portal to get there but yet somehow uh this handheld gun has enough energy to transmit a chicken, to swap the chicken and the dragon creature over all that over all that distance.
1: And you know, Ben, there's some other advanced features of the chickeninator. Um, we do learn in the episode early on that the ion shield around the planet um, prevents the portals from connecting to the planet and connects two portals to each other. Um, the chickeninator's technology is obviously substantially different because it actually goes through the ion shield. Um, so it's working on a different kind of um, structure. Makes me wonder a little bit. You know, the portals are probably some sort of electromagnetic base um, because they're being impacted by an ion shield. Um, the chickeninator may be more quantum based, looking at quantum resonances of the DNA of chicken. So there's that feature. The power is clear concern. What I find fascinating, Dan and Ben, I think the operation of the chickeninator shows a clear, definitive proof that chickens only evolved on the earth, because we look at both the nearest and the farthest chicken, and we are only taking earth chickens. We never get a chicken from anywhere else. So it is very interesting that Phineas and Ferb proves chickens only on the earth, no matter where else life evolved. Well, I like
0: that you said that. I was going to point that out because I think that that is actually very important. Because I think the obvious question would be, well, why didn't it, you know, swap with a chicken, even a chicken-like object on another planet, right? But I think the DNA signature is key here. Is that's what you're saying here, right,
1: Denon? I definitely go with the DNA signature and the unique DNA of chickens on Earth. Um, but it's also kind of interesting because it'll take any chicken. So that's kind of something um, that I that I really love. It's it's kind of a specific yet slightly general signature that it's looking for. Well, you know, and just to go on with that really quickly, you just made me think of something here, Denon, and guess what you made me think of?
0: A shameless plug for my other podcast, Fascinating Nouns. I did a whole episode on the history of chicken and the chickens that we eat, the chicken that appears in this movie is a very specific, purposefully bred chicken for, for human consumption. So it makes perfect sense that that particular chicken would only appear on Earth because I would find it very difficult that on an alien planet they would have produced something very similar, Uh, although not out of the question. But as we move on to the alien planet, I think that that's very key here because they spend a lot of time on this other planet. And I gotta tell you, I found the flora and fauna to be very interesting, very particular on this, including the fact that they land on this planet and we see lots of giant mushrooms, like in the movie Journey to the Center of the Earth that we also covered. Uh, Mushrooms in some ways, as I mentioned then, are almost in a way kind of alien. They're not like really anything else on our planet. I love mushrooms and fungus, and I think that that is the perfect starting point as we talk about the mind-controlling spore we're going to go to. Uh, Ben, I'm curious what you thought about this and the alien planet.
2: Well, first of all, I would think uh, it's just like Felucia from Star Wars, but, uh, you know, we each have our own (laughs) references. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so what's really interesting about this planet is uh, that the fauna here is very much looks like Mushrooms and fungi and things that we usually see as organisms that break down other organisms. And we don't see the typical photosynthesizing organisms like trees and grass and whatnot. I think this is an interesting uh, sh- way to show that this planet somehow does not have CO2 on it. Um, it it's only has these, uh, these animals that breathe oxygen and then exhale the oxygen as well. And using it as, say, a catalyst rather than uh, respiration as we understand it, where you breathe in oxygen, uh, bind it with a car- with a carbon, and breathe out CO2, and in that uh, bonding exercise, you get energy.
1: No, I think that's very true, um, Ben. And there's a lot of other features about this, Dan. You know, the 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 planet we've got, as you mentioned, the mind controlling spore creature. Um, that's going to be kind of interesting to look at as an alien species brought to this planet with a whole bunch of other species. It was really confusing to me, um, and I, I believe you have some theories on this, as to whether that mind-controlling spore creature is a fungi like this having issues because the carbon dioxide has gone or it came from somewhere else. Um so the, the fauna and flora on this planet um, has some interesting features that we, we really do need to get at and explore in more detail here. Well, I think so. I mean, you
0: know, I again, I'm going to do another shameless plug here. I did a fascinating nouns episode on mind-controlling parasites. And so what I learned is that mind-controlling, and we've even done it on the show before, but mind-controlling fungus exists in the world. Cordyceps are a fungus that are specifically designed to take control of insects and allow them to spread. So this is not unheard of. I I did learn about uh, massaspora, which is a type of insect that directly affects cicadas, and it essentially eats away their body organs and replaces it with fruiting bodies of the spores and is able to keep them together. Fascinating. I'm going to put it up, an article on the website. But what that tells you is that this mind-controlling aspect is not unfamiliar and is not impossible. But I think Ben latched onto something very important here, and that is they breathe in oxygen and then exhale oxygen. But like the movie Little Shop of Horrors, Audrey 2 drinks the blood and turns into this gigantic carnivorous plant? We see a change in this particular mind-controlling spore when it ends up breathing in the carbon dioxide. It's a question: did it come from a, a planet where carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere? Or if it came from a planet where only oxygen was in the atmosphere, like this planet, does the breathing of carbon dioxide fundamentally change the properties of? of this of this organism ben i know you got some ideas on this
2: yeah so i think what happens i think what best explains this is this this plant is probably from a planet that has a much lower concentration of carbon dioxide than than what we have on earth Um, it probably in order for the metabolic pathway of requiring carbon to exist at all it almost certainly must have been in an environment where there was at least a little carbon dioxide and then when it gets exposed to a place with much higher car- uh, concentrations, it, that uh, metabolic pathway that includes the carbon dioxide can kind of kicks it into high gear and really changes the nature of this plant. We see this in all sorts of different animals on our planet. Uh, their, yeast has both uh, me- uh, anaerobic and aerobic pathways. Those are pathways that use oxygen and consume oxygen, that uh, do and do not consume oxygen. Um, where fermentation, when uh, yeast is like in say beer making alcohol, it's not using oxygen. It's uh, just making uh, alcohol. Whereas when it does have uh, when it does have access to oxygen, it can do different things, and it makes CO two and other stuff as well. Um, Another great example is us. We are both aerobic and anaerobic. Uh, when you run really hard and you your muscles start burning, that's lactic acid. That lactic acid is a byproduct of anaerobic, so oxygen-free consumption in our bodies, uh, converting lactic acid because that's the only thing our body can do at that point to keep energy going into the muscles. It creates this acid byproduct that our then has to get rid of.
1: You know, and the other thing about this, Ben, you mentioned something, or maybe it was Dan, I apologize. You know, the thing grew super large when it got to Earth, way larger than when it was getting some CO2 from Candace, um, which there's also the interesting feature. It seems to have three stages. Um, highly withered with no CO2 around or very little, um, making mind-controlling spores, but itself being rather benign. And then Dan it becomes almost sentient in itself, right? And it's no longer willing to make the mind-controlling spores that the alien uses. It makes mind-controlling spores, becomes mobile, and goes after people itself. So it's an interesting multi-stage creature, like many of the aliens we've discussed in past
2: episodes. I I think it really makes sense there, because, you know, it might have this... uh, It might be making these spores uh, in its natural habitat for just a little bit of protection... But then when it, with its uh, minimal CO2, but then when it's in our environment here where it has tons and tons of CO2, that, that process of making this uh, defense mechanism can kick into overdrive. Well, I think it's
0: a perfect example of an invasive species, right? So on its planet, it has obviously offensive and defensive capabilities to protect itself against the flora and fauna of its home planet. But here on Earth, where it doesn't have those safeguards in place to keep that plant in check, it essentially becomes an invasive species and is able to flourish without a natural predator. I think there might be something like this
1: going on here. What do you think about that, Denon? No, I do agree. Um, I I think that's exactly what happens on Earth. Um, And it is interesting that the only way to actually end this thing, they tried many things, they have to go with the chickeninator, um, which really is just, I think, comes full circle and proves the power of the chickeninator device. the other thing about it that I find interesting is it's we, we went through a whole section on um, mushrooms and fungi on the planet, mind-controlling drugs, and never mentioned the psychedelic properties of mushrooms. Um, I'm not sure what that says so far about the connection between these things. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. So I am going to, before we end here, I do
0: have a note here about psychedelic mushrooms. That Massopora fungus that I told you that infects the cicada is actually a relative and contains the psychedelic chemicals found and hallucinogenic mushrooms and even tells the cicada when their genitals have been replaced by spore fruiting bodies, it still has the urge to have sex. If that is not psychedelic and there's not hallucinations involved, I don't know <laughs> I don't know when they would be. <laughs> Oh, I love that, Dan. I I can't wait to follow that link. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send it to you for sure. So we've arrived at our Errors, Additions, and Omissions section. This is Things We Wanted to Talk About, but we didn't quite have time, so we're going to cover them here very quickly. Denon,
1: do you have anything that we missed on Phineas and Ferb? Well, there's one key one, Dan. As we talk about the quantum entanglement, um, the viewers may recognize that there was a point where a gentleman and his wife—he um, was starting this you know, amusement park involving dragons—and his wife's like, "How can you do this? You don't have a dragon." And the chicken chickeninator attacks his chicken, and a dragon shows up. Any loyal Phineas and Ferb fan knows that this man takes advantage of the uh, Phineas and Ferb connection and. Many, many times throughout the episodes, he gains something special that he needs because of the way the innator interacts. I have yet been able to figure out how he is quantum entangled with the other two people, but there is clearly a connection there that may be a whole movie in itself waiting to happen. I don't know. The other thing I was tempted to try and do is name every inside joke from the seasons of Phineas and Ferb and realize I would miss one and we'd be here forever. So I think, Dan, this is a challenge to our viewers— Uh, when they get to this episode, we need to hear from them in Twitter space, and we'll put this as a tweet. What were their favorite inside Phineas and Ferb references from the movie to the series? I think that's a
0: great idea, and I got to tell you, I love that a third particle is now, a third human is now quantum entangled into this mess, and I think you're exactly right here. Uh, Ben, did we miss anything that you wanted to talk about?
2: You know, what I really enjoyed was the the bad human... uh, machine interactions that we saw um specifically with the uh, bad guy ship these hover devices that had horrible knob-based uh remote controls that were impossible to use the voice recognition that just doesn't work right you know i i really appreciated the uh seeing these even this advanced uh technologically advanced species still has yet to get uh human uh their UI systems figured out properly. <laughs> I think
0: that's exactly what I love that this where the AI mishears them. It's really funny. Um, I got something for you, Ben. You shared that you were a juggler. Well, when I was a kid, I loved string games. I loved Cat's cradle, and I loved taking pieces of string and turning them into all kinds of fun little objects. Uh, it, was a, it was a crazy phase that I went to. Some of those things I still know how to do. And in this episode, we see uh, Buford, I believe, does Cat's cradle with a yo-yo. Uh, I always did it with a piece of string, but I love that he did it with a yo-yo. Most Kids Today, I don't think, would get that reference. Uh, you know, normally, I don't like really meta movies, like Deadpool is not really for me, but there's this great scene in here where they're going so fast through time that the movie k- travels backwards in time to the point where the, the movie was being pitched in the movie studio. Uh, it's really inside, but it's that was just a funny little gimmick. You mentioned analog technology, Denon. You know, it's that canoe that they that Buford lugs around for the entire movie, and then he uses it on land like a battering ram. Uh, I think they use it uh, when they're flying to land safely Uh, This is a pretty useful canoe I don't know if it's worth lugging around for the entire episode and across the universe But it does come in handy, so at least it wasn't a complete waste I'm sure you guys loved the Space Adventures Star Trek parody that goes on in this movie And of course, Ben, we cannot possibly end this episode without you mentioning the Battle Bots that are on that show You are a robot creator, I'm going to give you the last word here What did you think about that final scene?
2: You know, I I loved seeing these awesome robots that the kids just seem to have uh, uh, readily available, no problem. Um, You gotta love a a group of, uh, you know, little kids who have uh, murder robots just ready to go. Um, But I also appreciated that uh, the bad guy is able to take them out really quickly. It just goes to show that the AI of robots is still... Well, I guess those were remote controlled. The you know even a, a super death robot that's remote controlled um, that relies on uh, melee attacks uh, is still weak to the uh, laser beam.
0: Well, thank God that that held up. I agree with you completely. Um, but if we've missed anything else or you want to mention the the aforementioned contest we're gonna put out about finding the inside jokes for Phineas and Ferb, you can reach us. On social media, the show is on Twitter at pod on Facebook at g b t. but you can get in touch with us individually.
1: Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Denon Michael, just switch my name, and then on Facebook at Prof Denon Michael. You need that extra prof there.
2: Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R.
0: And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. Well, in this, I normally tell you to want to be a superhero and not a supervillain, but I can't tell who's who in this episode. I don't know who to tell you to look out for because I really like Doofenshmirtz, but I don't think he's much of a supervillain. And he seems to be quantum entangled with the superhero Phineas. So what I say, use your best judgment, be responsible, be good to each other, and try to be a superhero. Until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glenn Co. production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like the show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, FGGBT.com. That's FGGBT.com, where you will find links to everything you're looking for. All the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page, links to our social media are right there. And if you go to the top of the page, you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety you can find the links that we talked about the in real life examples that we brought to you including videos and of course we've got each episode has its own youtube video you can watch it there if you prefer and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening